Hi, I'm Claire Riley, and welcome to MS Understood. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in April 2017. At the time, all I wanted to do was get on with my life, put my head in the sand, and privately listen to real people's stories about living with this unpredictable disease. I was deep in denial, terrified about the unknown ahead, and I felt really alone. So, here it is. MS Understood, conversations with real people from all walks of life who live with MS. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode of MS Understood was recorded across multiple lands. I recognise and acknowledge that all of Australia is Aboriginal land and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Like any of us that are living with MS would know that we can go through days, weeks, months where we go, wow, my brain has done such an amazing job given it's got all this scarring because it's just completely bypassing all of that. And then something happens, we get tired, we get stressed and we just go, what the hell? It's like <laughs> trying to fire through every broken pathway and we just feel really clunky. Today we chat with Jen Willis, a woman I've known for many, many years who also has MS. It is uncanny the similarities that our life has leading up to this point. She shares with us today how she talked to her kids about MS, the medication she chooses to take, and the fact that this week she walked 27 kilometres because it felt so good. Um, I'm really excited to share this chat with you all. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for coming on the MS Understood podcast. Um, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Yep, you're welcome. Um, this is one that I really um, am looking forward to having a chat. We've known each other. I'm just going to, you know, but I'm going to um, let the listeners know. We've actually known each other since 2003 when I came up to Wollongara as a young person and you were the director. So if the people haven't listened to my first episode, I actually talk about how I went and worked as a director for the last few years, up the, just almost immediately after my diagnosis. But we met when I was in high school and came then and worked. And you were my director when I was a staff member <laughs> at Wollongara, um, which I think is really cool. So we've known each other a really long time be since before both of us were diagnosed. Yeah. I think it's just a bit crazy. Um, so, yeah, after, I suppose, that bit of the story, I think we'll just get stuck straight in. So can you tell us all... Um, your diagnosis story, what led to your diagnosis, how long ago that was, and how what your immediate reaction was for that. I know that we're living great lives now, but I think that immediate reaction is what newly diagnosed people are wanting to know if their reaction's kind of similar to other people's. Yeah, and so my diagnosis took... Years, years and years, well over a decade um, from the first time that it was mentioned that I might have had MS. And so I had, so 2008, I had my third child. And after he was born, I just noticed my vision was a bit double for a couple of days and I got really bad vertigo. And because I just had a baby, I put it down to, and I'd had quite a bit of ibuprofen afterwards, I put it down to a medication reaction. And I you know, tried to sort of settle back in those first few days after having him just into, you know, I guess trying to cut back on the medications and hope that the vertigo would settle down. And it just wasn't. So I went and I saw a chiropractor. I looked up 
all sorts of things for vertigo. I thought maybe it's my ears, maybe it's my neck. Um, saw a chiropractor, tried doing different exercises for vertigo, ended up going back to the doctor and just saying, don't know what's going on. And my vision, you know, troubled me that bit. And they ended up sending me for an MRI. And so that first MRI I had, that was back in 2008, did the MRI. I was breastfeeding a new baby, baby number three, we we're in Colorado. And the girl that did the MRI afterwards, because I didn't have the dye because I was breastfeeding a new baby, just said to me, you may want to come back in. Well, the doctor might ask you to come back in and do it with the dye. And I said to her, oh, well, why? Why would you think that? And she said, look, there's just a mark on the MRI and it looks like it could be. She said, it's what we call a UBO, an unidentified bright object, but oh, it could wow. be. Yeah. And said, but it looks like it could be an MS lesion. And so, of course, I then went away going, oh, my gosh, what does this mean? Baby number three had been running a school in Colorado. Things had gone a bit pear-shaped, was no longer running the school, suddenly out of work, out of health insurance within six weeks, living in America. Wow. And without health insurance And you're insurance obviously America. not American. So that's not American. a different situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wasn't going to have any health cover. Um, my mum and dad were coming over for a holiday to the US um, and my mum ended up coming over earlier and I went back to a doctor and they referred me on to a neurologist and MS is really prevalent in Boulder, Colorado. So there's a lot yeah. of specialists around there. So I saw an MS specialist there and he had a look at my scan and said it did look to him like it probably was an MS lesion. He said he thought probably, you know, 50% chance that it was likelihood or high that it was MS. And he then organised a spinal tap and I had the spinal tap and I came back and that was clear. And he then said, look, maybe only about 10% chance it is MS. There's only the one lesion. And so we ended up leaving the US and I came back to Australia and I had some vision testing and things. So I just had some more testing done here and saw a neurologist. I was up in Tamworth near New South Wales. Um, and the neurologist there, um, so there was some sort of loss of colour vision that I'd had. Um, the vertigo ended up sort of settling. And so I was due to have another MRI sort of 12 months after that first MRI that I'd had just to see what was going on. And I was seeing a neurologist who had suggested maybe starting medication I think now they talk about clinically isolated symptom or syndrome, um, CIS, whatever. And because I'd had that one lesion and I'd had some colour vision loss, it was, you know, could warrant starting medication. Um, and I said to him, look, I don't really want to know. And I'd been offered a job in Vietnam. And so I went back to him and I said, I'm not going to do the MRI. I'm going to take the job in Vietnam. I'll go over there. If something happens over there, then great. We'll figure it out from there. But I didn't want to start medication. So we went over to Vietnam when, sorry about my dog, when we were over there, the dizziness kicked off again. And so I went and I had another MRI in Vietnam. And when that scan got looked at, there was a really, he looked like he was about 150 year old Vietnamese um, radiologist that read the scan. And he said he didn't think that I had any lesions at all. He said he thought that there was, he could see this one spot and he thought it was almost just like a tiny fluid filled spot in my brain where there just hadn't been brain tissue develop um my, my blind spot to anything I don't want to acknowledge in life <laughs> so that he and so I thought okay that's fine it looks like I don't have MS um then I came back to Australia we're down so on this Island. is when when is, is this about 2010 11 10. now yep. 10 yeah so I started in 2008 now about 2010 um 2010 to 2014 
living down on King Island, nothing to indicate anything going on really. And then we moved to South Korea. And over there, I just started noticing my memory wasn't so great. And I had a big job. I was, you know, in a big international school in a senior leadership position. And I was covering a lot of different areas, but I was just having to write lists in a way that I just hadn't noticed before. And I had a really funny sort of story that I thought was funny that I told a doctor. And there's a movie called Still Alice and it's got Julianne Moore in it. And in this movie, she plays an actor, um, or she plays a character that gets early onset Alzheimer's. And she, it sort of shows her journey of coming to grips with that and sort of almost like personal decisions about how she would like her to end her life to end if she loses control of her own cognition. Anyway, I was coming back from my school that I worked at in South Korea back to the apartments that we lived in and the kids out as faculty, we would catch buses back and forth and our kids would catch them, catch them. And Charlotte, my daughter, was on the bus. And when I got off the bus, as I was getting off, I said, Char, oh, hi, Char. And she said, you already said hello to me, Mum. And I was like, no, I didn't say hello to you. Yeah, you did, Mum. No, no, I didn't. And we were walking through the car park and she just said to me, oh, I'm a bit worried about you, Mum. She said, I'm really, you're like, your memory has got, there's something not right. And I said to her, oh, Shah, don't be ridiculous. I said, go and see that movie Still Alice. And I said, if you find out that I'm like her, like Julianne Moore, the character in that, then start getting worried. And she looked at me, she was just stricken. She said, oh, my God, Mum, I'm really worried. And I was like, what? She said, we went and saw that movie together. And I had no memory. (laughs) And so I went, I was going to a doctor's for something else. And I told him this story. And I just said, I've just noticed my memory's a bit off, but I sort of laughed it off. And he said, nah, I think that we need to actually do some more checks. And so they did an MRI then in Korea. So we're probably now in 2015. And that just showed up a few little white spots. Um, And I was coming back to Australia. So they did just a baseline neuropsych testing as well back here just to check sort of cognitive levels. And so for me, luckily, like I'm sort of very high up in that area. And so I sort of thought, oh, well, that's okay. I've got a bit of distance to fall if things, you know, don't sort of, if things, if I do start to decline cognitively. Um, But anyway, it just sort of then moved on to more sort of routine MRIs. But over time, they were just gradually showing a couple more of these white spots. So they thought I might've had um, small vessel disease. So at this point, they still hadn't diagnosed you with MS. Hadn't wow. diagnosed so this is now like, what did you say, 2015? So seven years. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and so still hadn't diagnosed me. A couple more white spots coming up. We're still having some problems with the vertigo coming and going. Um, we ended up moving back to Australia and I had more, a couple more routine MRIs that still showed a bit more of these spots. And then I had a weird sort of visual episode that I thought, they, you know, first thought maybe it might have been a mini stroke and they did another MRI then and I went in to see the doctor to get those results. And so my dad died of a brain tumour and in 2013. And so when I've had anything looking in my brain, I think I'm always a little bit paranoid going, what if, you know, just very mild symptoms, but what if ever it was something that wasn't MS? And so, or wasn't vasculitis or wasn't, because I think for a long time I thought, look, it probably is MS. Um, anyway, so I had this other MRI done and when the doctor came in to bring me the report, it hadn't arrived yet. And then the fax machine started going at the front desk and they said it was my report and the pages kept coming and coming. And he said to me, I'll head into my office. I'll just read the report and I'll be in with you shortly. And about 10 minutes later, he came in and he knelt down opposite me and he put his hand on my knee and he just looked 
sullen and he's just said he said really gently how are you feeling and I said you know fine and he said it does look like there is something going on and I just stopped and grabbed his hand and just stared at him and said oh my god have I got a brain tumor Oh, my God. And he said, no, it looks like you have MS. And I was like, oh, thank God, thank God, thank God. I thought I was dying. This is fantastic news. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and so and then I went and I had another spinal tap and that one came back clear as well. And from what I can understand, wow. that's a really good sign progression-wise. Um, right. I could be completely wrong. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. But for me anyway, placebo effect, I take that as really good news. Still didn't diagnose MS. Still thought maybe vasculitis. What did he what send to you? On. Thought it might be. Because, the because the spinal tap came back clear, they still wouldn't diagnose it. Is that yeah. right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so in that report, the MRI report, it had talked about it looked like there were signs of demyelination. Um, Anyway, then 2018, middle of 2018, I just had another routine MRI um, that showed a little bit more demyelination and a couple of three lesions that it talked about convergence and there was the word progression in the report. The doctor that had organised that MRI read the report, said, I don't think you need to see a neurologist. I don't think it's, I, I think you're fine. And I kept reading that report myself and I kept reading this con or congru convergence or congruence, I can't remember, and I kept reading this word progression. And so that doctor had gone off around Australia and I went back to the same clinic and got another doctor and he looked at it and said, no, I think we need to get you down to see a neurologist. And so I went down, I had Tyler, who was then 10 with me, went to the third? my third child, yeah. um, went to the neurologist, just Tyler and I, and he said to me, you know, I, I think he, he didn't get the um, MRI, the images. He'd only given, been given the written report then. And he said, look, I need you to come back once I've got the images. But I think probably when you come back, bring in ad another adult with you. We might just have a talk about medication. And I said to him then, oh, do you think I do have MS? And he said, I think it is really likely. I just need to see the report. So this was mid-2018? Mid-2018. So wow. 10 years. 10 yeah. years. And then I went back down in October and he had the um, report and the slides by then, um, the images. And he was then able to look and said, yep, yeah, clinically able to diagnose MS, um, gave me options of what treatments I'd like to start. Felt like it was still fairly mild based on my symptoms and so I sort of weighed up. I decided I'd got done some research and thought I wanted to start on Mavenclad. I wanted to hit it hard. Um, and then he was, he's really good. His name, um, Professor Yan, he's at Royal Melbourne in the private suites there. And I really like him, just very matter of fact. But he also had dealt with um, vasculitis. And so oh, if it right. had been so that, so I felt good that he could sort of, he would know. Um, in the end, we sort of talked about it and he sort of suggested because it's mild at the moment, I didn't want anything really that was going to give me side effects the more I thought about it because I thought I'm living, you know, fairly symptom-free. So I started Capaxone then. Um, yeah. And so, but the, so that took from 2008 to 2018 to get diagnosed from when they first mentioned MS. But I'd actually had symptoms, so I'm now 49. The first symptoms I ever had were in about 1995. Wow. And I something happened with my walking and I wasn't able to walk well for a few months and I missed about, um, I was doing out to it, I missed about three months of uni and then my walking picked back up but they never did any checks or anything. And then before we came and directed Wollongara, 
I was having some more problems and they diagnosed me then with chronic fatigue. Mm, and yeah. so I got that diagnosis, then gone in to run wall. Um, Which is exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so I suspect maybe it's something's been going on. I've just been like the, you know, classic, what I felt like classic hypochondriac since I was about 25 because there was just always little niggles, weird body sensations, hot patches, bit of dizziness, just some fatigue and things where I was like, oh. So I suspect probably for over 20 years now it's just been slowly progressing to the point where you finally reach a diagnosis. So I now have, I think, you know, last MRI, my sort of lesion lobe was about 20 lesions, um, mainly through my brain, one very minor one now in my spine. But I um, am, I think, you know, when we were chatting before we came on here, saying I'm pretty much symptom-free though. Yeah, that's really so, great. Yeah. yeah. And because I know, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like when I first, when we very first chatted, so I, um, I kind of didn't have a choice and I came out at Wollongara and all of the council members replied to my email with like, you should talk to Jen. And I was like, I actually already have. Um, yeah. Because they had seen, I think you'd put something on Facebook quite early on. Um, yeah. And I remember you saying to me, now, see, my memory has just <laughs> gone. Um, but oh, but you were still having kind of brain foggy fatigue stuff at that point. Yeah. But but over the last two years, things have improved. Yeah, and so last May would have been the last time I really had many symptoms, and so I've had two sort of weird episodes that started each time with a feeling like my brain just flipped itself upside down. It felt like someone had whacked me over the head with a baseball bat and it literally stopped me in my tracks, literally, you know, expletive coming out going, what the F just happened and going, oh, my God, has someone just hit me in the head? But no, hitting in the head. And my brain just would go bang and, and really scare me, like take my breath away type sensation of like, whoa. And then each time that happened, it kicked into sort of quite severe vertigo and fatigue. Um, and so the last time I had that was May last year and it lasted about six weeks. Um, and that was then sort of like I was still working full time and I was studying, doing another master's part time as well. And I was able to sort of keep going. But on the weekends when I was studying, I would be able to write for sort of, you know, 15 minutes and then I'd have to sleep for half an hour and then write for 15 minutes. And so that lasted about six weeks. But since then, um, really, what's that been now, a year and a half? You know, I have minor, very minor symptoms, but they're so minor that it's hard to actually go is this just hormones is this what is it so yeah so I've, I've just been so lucky um and I think you know I'm, I've made some changes I sort of I, you know I'm principal of a school that's Buddhist inspired and so bringing a lot of that sort of wisdom into my life as far as how to sort of manage my own thought patterns and processes and so meditation a lot of mindfulness um the overcoming MS diet I followed that quite strictly for about 18 months and then I've sort of you know I have mellowed on that a little bit um I chose that one because it suggested moderate wine intake <laughs> and I like having you know I don't, I don't drink much but I like a glass of wine with dinner and I was like oh I like a diet that says that that's good um I'm really lucky in that physically I'm still very able so I, the May 50k was a really big motivator for me during that lockdown and I started walking every day and I got to the point, like I'm sort of at the point now, where I don't walk. Sorry. 
if I don't walk sort of 10K in a day, I'm feeling a bit lazy, so I'm walking a lot. Um, and, I, and I made, I think I said, you know, I made a, another big life change in that I ended my marriage as well. Um, and I think just, you know, I really tried to just go, how do I want to live? How do I want to be? I want to be my best self in every way in the hope that maybe I will live asymptomatically for the rest of my life. Um, and I think we were saying earlier, it's a bit of a Russian roulette. You know, it's a lucky dip. I have no idea. But every day that I wake up feeling good, I'm just absolutely seizing that day and making the most of this, you know, body that I know is a bit chinked on the inside, but just working so well for me. Yeah, absolutely. In the physical sense. So, yeah. Like, I don't really believe in luck. I feel like people work for what they get. But I do think that it is lucky where our symptoms are because there's absolutely no control over what happens to our bodies from the inside. We can't, um, we can't control where those lesions end up. We can control, like you said, the diet, the medication we choose to take, how we you know, manage our stress, our body, all of those things, but we can't control where those lesions may happen. Yeah, if we do end up having a major flare-up. Yeah. It's just luck of the draw where that happens in our body. And so, yeah, and I know for me, yeah, I'm for me, and, you know, so this recent degree I did in positive psychology and looking a lot at neuroplasticity and things like that as well, I actually will consciously sometimes try and cleanse my neural pathways mentally and picture where those nerves are all running and clean them out and try and create positive new pathways. Um, And so... Yeah, I think for me that, you know, is just my own weird little practice that I do as well to sweep the brain of any debris that might be blocking those pathways and and just trusting in the capacity of our bodies to do a lot of sort of redirecting in order to, you know, keep us moving and keep us surviving. I think, you know, as humans, we're, we're born to have a pretty strong survival instinct. And I think our bodies naturally take care of some of those things for us anyway. And that's, you know, the fact the brain can rewire incredible ways. And I think like most people, and I think, you know, you'd know it as well, like any of us that are living with MS would know that we can go through days, weeks, months where we go, wow, my brain has done such an amazing job given it's got all this scarring because it's just completely bypassing all of that. And then something happens, we get tired, we get stressed and we just go, what the hell? It's like (laughs) trying to fire through every broken pathway and we just feel really clunky and you know for me I'm not affected by heat but I'm affected by cold and so on really cold days I feel like my brain is a jigsaw that's suddenly been shaken and the pieces don't quite fit together whereas in the heat such an amazing description Mm. yeah and you where you are gets quite cold yeah 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 it does and so So what do you do to manage that how do you keep yourself from feeling shaken um Try not to get too cold. Um, so keep the heating on. So my gas bill is ridiculous. Like in the winter, I keep the house warm right through. Yep. Um, I'll have lots of hot bars if I feel I'm getting cold. And as soon as I warm back up, you know, everything sort of settles back in. But if I go through a few days where I am feeling really cold, I do just start to go, oh, come on. Just want to, you know, whack the head a bit and just sort of get those pieces to fall back into place. Yeah. Right. Um, have you ever tried a sauna? No, because I've got this sort of, I have been in saunas, but when yeah, I've I meant very, sorry, specifically yeah. for, yeah. No, because when I very first got sick, when I had problems walking, I'd, and this was back in 95, I went in a um, steam room 
and I got really, really sick and I kept getting sicker and sicker. And after that, it's when my walking, everything started to go. So I've got a bit of a Aversion. weird connection yeah. of going, did that trigger? Yep. You know, the heat or something. So just, yeah. no, no, you've got to do what works. Um, yeah, yeah. Just going back, when you were first diagnosed, you decided to go straight onto your medication. Do you yep. still keep, are you still taking that now? Yeah, yeah. So I take um, Capaxone 40 milligrams three times a week. It's amazing for anyone else that's particularly if you're new to starting out Capaxone. Um, for me to give myself the injection was so much easier than the idea of someone else giving it to me. Um, but I was so diligent. I would heat and I would inject and I would call or whichever way and I'd write it all down. And it was, you know, every injection I did was sort of 45 minutes, the process of getting through it three times a week. And now I open the packet, jab it in in bed, <laughs> discard it in, you know, the next day or whatever. Um, and I don't even write it down anymore. It's amazing how I think, you know, I just became a bit more comfortable with it. Um, and for me, it's been a really good medication. I don't get any sort of systemic side effects at all. So I don't notice that I'm taking it, but it does. So the, the symptom, or sort of, sorry, not symptom, the side effect I get from that is it can cause what's called, I think it's lipoatrophy. So it can kill off fat. And so in my thighs, it started to do that. So I just started to sort of get dense. And then I've moved to just doing it around my stomach and hips because I don't have a lot of weight anyway. Like I only weigh about 44 kilos yes. and I'm five foot four. So, um, but I started running out of fat. And it's funny, yeah. people are like, oh my God, I'd love an injection that kills fat. But when you're relying on that fat to get that injection into it, yeah. and you start to, it starts, the fat starts to die away. And so I've got less and less fat and more and more scarring. It's, yeah, it's not easy doing it. So I'm having to sort of now inject through a bit of scar tissue and things which you're not really meant to do. And so it's, and it, you know, it's hard to know. I'm really happy on that medication because I don't get other symptoms, but it might, I can't imagine, some people stay on it for 20 years. Wow. I can't imagine I'll be able to do that because I can't work out where I'd be able to keep injecting without. And a lot of it, you know, some of it's cosmetic. Like I could have, you know, I'm you know, nearly 50 and I could still wear a bikini, but my stomach now has just been damaged from that and so yeah. you know but weighing that up going wow but I'm you know I think I said to you, I walked 27 k's the other day just because yeah. I started walking didn't want to stop so if my stomach's a bit unsightly but I'm and you can walk 27 working, kilometers yeah then, yeah I'd take it I'd trade it in a heartbeat yeah yeah I'm bloody lucky bloody yeah. lucky so yeah um you have three kids who I know and are great yeah um how did you tell them about your diagnosis because I've spoken to some of the other people I've interviewed. One of the other women is that she's got young girls and it doesn't, it, they're kind of too young for it to be an issue. But your kids, Charlotte, would have been 18 when you were, or 17 when you were diagnosed. 17, yeah. So yeah. having that conversation is, is a kind of a different thing from talking to a six-year-old. Yeah, look, honestly, I don't even remember because I think it was just a part of the possibility of my life from you know, when Tyler was born in 2008 and what was Charlotte then? Seven, nearly eight. And so it's just been, because it's taken so long, it's been something that I've lived with an awareness of anyway. Um, and so I, I can't actually remember having an actual conversation. Maybe I'd gone down for a check and I might've just come back and said, oh yeah, I do actually, I officially have it. I'm going to start a medication. But it wasn't like, oh my God, what is it? Um, when I was very first sort of when neurologist was very first questioning whether I had MS back in 2008, my um, Rhina, my you know husband, 
then, as I'm sure recently. <laughs> yeah. um, he had a cousin that had done quite a lot of study into MS at the time. And so I sort of learned a lot about it then. So the conversations in our family were sort of already quite well informed that maybe one day I'd start a medication. Um, early on, I probably, you know, was sort of very conscious of the stress and of the kids and going, you know, we've got to manage this as a family and, you, I, you know, you can't create more stress for me. And I've sort of worked through that a bit going, you know what, the kids can't not create stress. They, mm. I love my kids, but they exist in my life and that creates stress. Um, Tyler one day said that he thought MS stood for, he decided it stood for mummy's superpowers. Oh. Um, and they'll go through times if they see that I am getting a bit more stressed where they'll suddenly become a bit more conscious, but because they can't see it, they tend not to think about it. But um, So Charlotte, who's now in Brisbane doing nursing paramedicine, is actually working for MS Queensland as a support worker. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so she has sort of become much, you know, more aware of it as well and works with people that are a lot, you know, I mean, I'm not disabled at all, people that are quite disabled from it as well. So I think it's given her much deeper understanding and understanding of the what-ifs and the possibilities as well. So, yeah, which I think, you know, that for me, having an awareness of what can happen and knowing that, you know, it's much more likely in our lives once we've already been diagnosed with MS, that 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 could happen. But it's also much more of a motivation to actually manage our health in a very holistic way and really look after ourselves. So in some ways, I feel like it's, you know, in some ways knowing that I have MS reduces my risk of getting sicker from it because if I didn't know I had it, I would have had it anyway. But I might not be making as good a lifestyle choices. And so she's now able to sort of support the choices I make and make suggestions. Um, I brought, I I cut all red meat out for a long time. I brought back in some lean meat and she was sort of like, oh, I don't know, mum, like, you know, most of the patients they have don't eat uh, are vegetarian or vegan. Um, Yeah, wow. And and those ones that are sort of a bit more remote. That's a lot to do with the overcoming MS diet because I know that there's two there's the wilds diet and then there's the overcoming MS and yeah I don't do either um but I know that yeah the overcoming MS is mostly vegetarian with a bit of fish yep and wilds is um very almost the complete opposite the complete opposite yeah 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 and and, I think and, you've and, got and, to find what works best for you yep and honestly I bought the overcoming MS book I flipped through it I f- happened to just flip straight to the page on moderate wine intake and you're like done and, and i was like that one's done that one yep good yeah do i'll that. do it so, yeah i'll do that so right. yeah um you are a principal at a school you've always worked really hard you got your diagnosis and you shared publicly on facebook how do you go about telling your employers i don't know what it's like because you're the principal at a school but you've had to have told your staff your the your peers um how come you decided to disclose when you've got, I suppose, no symptoms and yeah. how did people react to that? And so my motivation for deciding to disclose, I think, you know, like you coming from an outdoor ed background, being a rock climber, I'd always dreamt of mountaineering and never managed to. Um, and years ago when we were actually directing Wollongara and we went and got tattoos. Ah, um, that's right. Claire and I, we got tattoos. We got them together, didn't we? Oh, um, no, that was Claire Easton. I didn't get oh, a that tattoo was Claire with you. Wrong Claire. Yeah. Wrong, Claire. Oh, my yeah. God, our memory wasn't you. That was Claire Easton. No, You're right. no. Yeah, yeah, the year um, after. Yes, yes, yeah. but I got a little, I thought it was Elizabeth, it's actually a gecko, and that was, I got that on my foot just to remind me. I love being on Warm Rock in the sun, the climbing, and just to remind me to keep doing things that I really loved. 
And as I was moving through this diagnosis, I thought I really want to climb again. And I thought I really want to climb a mountain one day. And then I thought when I do, when I do, interesting, I say that because I guess, you know, I must have known eventually I would. When I finally get that diagnosis, I want to plan to climb a peak. Um, a, a significant peak and I want to do that as a fundraiser for MS because I want to, you know, I felt like it gave me some purpose and something to set my sights on. And so as soon as I found out I had that diagnosis, I wanted to go public just to say, I've got this diagnosis, I've got this dream, here's something I'd like to do. And partly I think, you know, for me, sharing dreams a bit more publicly helps me go, ah, I'm putting it out there to the universe, I'm putting it out to the people that know me and support me, I'm putting it out to the doubters that might go, oh, you'll never do that. And I'm the sort of person, if someone says you can't do that, I'm like, watch me. Um, and so that was probably my biggest motivator. But I wanted to tell my work because I thought I'm going to share on Facebook that I do have this diagnosis and I want to go and climb this mountain and who's either in for the journey, who's up for support. I've, I've picked my mountain now. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's it's not Everest. There was, there was an opportunity <laughs> if I wanted to climb Everest, but I think, you know, that's... It's a bit of a highway, but a peak in Nepal called Amadablam. That's oh, just Amadablam. under seven. Jay used to be the mountain, one of the mountain guides on Amadablam. Excellent. Yeah, you Excellent. guys can I'll talk about chat. it. Yeah, I definitely. Will definitely talk about it. Yeah, um, and so I'll plan on doing that sort of in the next, you know, eighteen months, COVID permitting, yeah. um, and I'll aim to do that as a fundraiser for MS Research. But because of that, I told my work. The only thing that happened on the day that I told my teachers, though, one of our other staff members had been going through a bit of testing and she had just been diagnosed with celiac. And she'd had, you know, a lot of iron problems and things around that. So she came in and shared with everyone that she'd just been diagnosed with celiac. And I'm gluten-free and have been for years and years in dairy. So that that felt to her quite a big thing to share. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I, I joke about this phrase being a story topper. And yeah. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I then said, look, I've got some news that I would like to share and it is that I have been diagnosed with MS. And I think it, it sort of shocked people and they yeah. were worried. They were sort of sad for me. And once I was able to explain that, you know, I think it's quite mild. This is, you know, I've only just been diagnosed, but, you know, it, it's, it's not a sudden shock for me. Um, everyone adapted quite well. And I think at that time, I was having some more symptoms though. I was having a bit more vertigo and I was getting more tired and I'd have some days, which I'll still have very occasionally where, you know, I just want to shut my office door and put my head on my desk and sleep. And, you know, I'm very good, you know, in those times when I've had that, if someone comes in, I sit up and I'm sprightly and I'm <laughs> full of energy and then they walk out and I just try and sleep again. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so telling my school as well, I'm filled with anxiety and I think, one of the biggest things for me was I know how capable I am and I know how capable I am of working through challenges as well and I believe in my own capacity but other people's doubt in my capability and my capacity and their worry about whether or not I might start to show signs of becoming disabled, that for me has been probably the greatest challenge and I just don't ever want to hear worry from anyone else. I don't want to hear doubt from anyone else. I want to go, you know, I'm living so well. I want you to admire me and not ever worry for me. And if I decide that I need someone to worry for me, I'll I'll let you know. Yeah. I'll tell you. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, see my strengths, see my abilities and just celebrate them with me every day that I'm, because I'm really good at the moment at celebrating how well I am and how fortunate I am. So celebrate alongside me, climb mountains next to me, but just don't, don't, don't 
you know, don't picture me down in the valleys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, This is the last question I like to ask everyone for the podcast and it is what is something you would tell people to make MS understood? Um, I think I wouldn't tell them. I would encourage them just to ask so many questions of people that have it Um, because I think there's something nice about being able to tell your story because I think for me I'm I'm, you know very much a natural storyteller and when you tell your story you uncover things about yourself as well that helps you understand you tell your experiences you tell your insights you start to see inside yourself and you start to see your own understandings and your own wisdom and your own strengths and so if you know someone that has it engage with them about it and you know ask them are they comfortable to talk about it first and then, and then ask them, let them live openly and fully with it because when you've got it, there's not a day that you don't actually live without it. There are days when you don't notice you have it or you don't think about having it, but every single day you have it. And so to actually be able to feel whole as a person and seen as a person with that just being another part of you, I think for me at least that's something really important is, yeah, ask me, listen to my story, celebrate my achievements and yeah, feel as proud of me as I feel as myself of myself I think you know for how we can kick ass in life in spite of our challenges so yeah absolutely um thank you so so much Jen for giving us your time and thank you for sharing your story on the MS Understood podcast you're welcome Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of MS Understood. I really loved chatting with Jen. And if you know someone who will get something out of this episode, please share it with them. Jen doesn't have a public social media platform, but keep your eyes peeled on the MS Understood podcast Instagram page for when she climbs Amadablam so that we can support her in her fundraising. Thank you so much for listening. Please give us a follow on Spotify or a five-star review on any um, podcast platform. Find me on Instagram at Claire.Riley or MS Understood Podcast. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.